It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. I feel like I should say, Happy New Year, Sky. But it's a little more complicated than that. That's right. It's not yet New Year. We're recording this podcast prior to Christmas because I'm taking off the week of January 2nd through the 6th, but we wanted to drop a podcast on January 6th. So we're doing a little pre-record for this episode. That's right. We decided that we would take two special edition podcast episodes and look at how think tanks and interest groups interact with the General Assembly, one from the right and one from the left, presumably. Again, one is a conservative, but they are not a Republican group, and one is a liberal, but not a Democratic group. So this week, we sat down with Donald Bryson from the John Locke Foundation. It's a great conversation. You know, there's a lot to learn from both sides and how they go about lobbying the General Assembly. They both have challenges in front of them, and that goes for the conservative John Locke Foundation. You know, Donald will talk about this in the interview. They don't get everything they want, and they are in some major battles with the leadership. We Medicaid expansion. <laughs> yeah. He gives us a really inside perspective on how they deal with that and how they come up with their legislative agenda. But one thing's for sure, we are all preparing for session that begins on January 11th. That's basically a ceremonial swearing in. Speaker Moore will get reelected as Speaker, and Senator Phil Berger will get reelected as Senate Pro Tem, and we'll have a lot of pomp and circumstance, and we'll have a lot of family and friends and people who helped folks in their campaigns. It's a great day, but January 25th, Sky, that is the day we really get to work. I love the ceremonial things. It is fun because it's one of those days that everybody is happy. You know, there's nothing crazy that's going to pop up and you get to see everyone's family. A lot of kids are there and you have all of the official first day of session sort of feelings. It's like a high school reunion or something, seeing all your friends from church camp. You get to go back. Everybody's happy to see each other. All of that optimism and wanting to work together. Now, it's not going to last. It's going <laughs> to get rocky. Uh, and especially, I think, the first bill we always see, and we'll probably not see it on Wednesday, will be the rules mm-hmm. of the House and Senate. And mm-hmm. that brings up a lot of debate. Can you explain to listeners the difference between getting sworn in on January 1st and getting sworn in on January 11th? The General Assembly of 2021-22 ended at midnight, December 31st. So Jamie Bowles, at the time of this podcast drop, is no longer a representative. So a lot of folks, most legislators, if not all legislators, will have a swearing-in back in their district. A lot of folks do it at midnight, January 1st, when the ball drops. Some folks do it a couple days after. But the ceremonial swearing-in that we have at the General Assembly is really the official start of the legislative session. Basically, the folks who were elected in November of 2022 are now members of the General Assembly. Can you also explain why the General Assembly is voting for Speaker Moore and 
president pro tem. So those are constitutional positions. They are outlined in our North Carolina Constitution. We have a governor, a lieutenant governor, council of state, but the General Assembly elects these officers as constitutional officers. So it's important to point out that Speaker Tim Moore is third in line to be governor if something terrible was to happen to the governor and lieutenant governor. And then Senator Berger, who is the president pro tem, he is fourth in line. Now, the positions of the caucuses, Majority Leader Paul Newton, Majority Leader John Bell, uh, Conference Chair Jason Sane, uh, Whips Jim Perry, Tom McInnes, those are elected by the caucuses. They are not constitutional positions. They come in as those positions. They, don't, they only have to be elected by their caucuses. Is there anything that could happen that could upset, let's say, Speaker Moore being Speaker after the caucus had voted on it? Could someone put a name and nomination on January 11th? Yeah. Absolutely. That could happen. I predict that the Democrats are not going to put a name as an alternative. I think he will get this by acclamation. It will be a unanimous vote. And by the way, I think that is a good move for Democrats to make. It says, hey, he's our leader. We accept that. We're ready to work together. I think the same with Senator Phil Berger. But you have been working at the General Assembly in years where the fight for Speaker is quite a fight, right? Oh, yeah. It was back in the 2003 session. Tell me a story, old man. (laughs) Republicans came with their nominee, Leo Daughtry Mm -hmm. from Johnston County. Great legislator, by the way. He was going to be Speaker of the House. And a faction of the Republican Party, Representative Richard Morgan, down in Moore County, it is the seat currently held by Ben Moss, he put together a coalition of about a dozen Republicans. And they brokered a deal with, at the time, former Speaker Jim Black. And they came up with a co-speaker arrangement where Speaker Black would be in the chair one day and Speaker Morgan would be in the chair the next day. And so all committees in the House, they had a Republican chair and a Democratic chair. And it created a lot of acrimony among Republicans. In fact, it got to the point, it was so divisive that Republicans stopped caucusing because they were so split. Now, a lot of Republicans eventually got on board. They wanted to get their bills passed, so they it kind of evened itself out. But there was a lot of resentment towards uh, Speaker Richard Morgan. In fact, he lost his election four years later. And it was interesting for this reason. It wasn't until 2011, I believe, where they would take a break, where you have the ceremonial swearing in, then you take two weeks off and you would start session. We used to start session on the first day and you didn't take a break. So there was about a week where we did not have a speaker while this deal was being worked out. And the House would come into session every single day, starting around mid-January, and they would have a roll call vote. And no one was getting enough votes to be Speaker. In the meantime, this deal is being brokered. Denise Weeks, who was the House principal clerk at the time, was presiding over the House during this entire drama. We would go to session every day just to hear the roll call. 
we would leave every day with no speaker. And the impasse was getting very dramatic. There was one incident in which Carrie Allred, Republican from Alamance County, there was a rumor that he was not in session one day because the Democrats had pretty much got him to not come to session. The Democrats were coming up short by one vote. And Representative Skip Stam, who was a master of the rules, <laughs> made a motion when Carrie Allred was not on the floor. Uh, Representative Stam's counting votes, Democrats counting votes. Hey, Democrats might have the votes today to elect Jim Black as Speaker. And Representative Stam made a motion to read yesterday's journal in its entirety. And Denise Weeks was up there just reading the journal. In comes Carrie Allred. Late. He's about 45 minutes late. They do another roll call vote. Comes up. No speaker. But uh, finally, as I said, the deal was made and co-speakers happened. And it made for a very, <laughs> made for an interesting session. If there was anything good out of that session, and I know there's still a lot of hard feelings among some of those Republicans that served during that time, but uh, we got out of session that year, 2003. I think we got out of session in mid-June, and there was an agreement that no controversial bills would pass. So basically, that session, if you were trying to get legislation passed, you had to get Democrats as co-sponsors, you had to get Republicans as co-sponsors, because anything that was for Republicans or for Democrats, I won't say anything, but most of that legislation just went to rules and died. That was my magic wand. You have to have a bipartisan bill. Yeah, well, you would have liked that session. You know, I was a young lobbyist, so I knew drama was unfolding every single day. I didn't have a historical perspective. I now, when I look back at it, I go, man, that was weird. What a weird time. Enough of the history lesson. Let's get on with the interview. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Donald Bryson, President and Chief Strategy Officer at the John Locke Foundation. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me back. I'm, I'm stunned that you had me back. <laughs> uh, not many people do, so thank you. <laughs> We're only doing it because that episode was high performing, not because we like you. Oh, you need to bump, you got to bump your numbers some. I got you. We're talking about the podcast we did with Donald and Brent Woodcox and the tweets, and uh, it was just right. a fun episode. I, I thought a lot came out of that. It was good. I thought it was a great and healthy conversation. I listened to it again myself to make sure I didn't sound like idiot. So tell us about what is your job on a day-to-day -day basis? If maybe someone didn't listen to the other podcast or if they just don't know what sure. the bulk of your work is. Uh, there is no real day-to-day -day for my job specifically. After the, the merger of the Civitas Institute and the John Locke Foundation. Tell <clears throat> us a little bit about that too. Sure. In the 1980s during the Reagan administration, there was a businessman named Tom Rowe from South Carolina who was part of the Reagan administration. 
And he was impressed with the, the level of policy help and advice that think tanks in D.C. were able to give lawmakers in D.C. and thought, you know, it would actually be helpful to state legislators and governors and cabinet secretaries if this sort of infrastructure existed in the states. And so Senator Reagan challenged him, go do it, go build it. And so that's what he did. Uh, he started a foundation and start helped founding uh, think tanks around the country. And the John Locke Foundation was one of the earliest ones to pop up. Uh, and so Mark Rodman, uh, Art Pope, and John Hood all had three different ideas about what the Locke Foundation should look like. Mark Rodman thought it should be uh, an organization that puts on a series of events that sort of displayed conservative thought. Uh, Art Pope, and nobody should be surprised if you know him, wanted uh, an organization that put out white papers uh, and the, like the hardcore policy analysis. And then John Hood thought that there should was room for an organization that would provide conservative-based journalism. We do all three of those things mm-hmm. at the John Locke Foundation. Mm-hmm. In 2005, Jack Hawk uh, and Art Pope and, and Mr. John William Pope uh, founded the Civitas Institute, which was not which was a think tank, but more of a rapid-fire uh, analysis and commentary, uh, a little bit not political in how it acted, but political in its commentary, um, that sort of to the right of the John Locke Foundation. Mm. Uh, and they, they were supposed to talk to different audiences. Civitas is Latin for, one, the, the idea of civics, but also the, the body politic of people that vote, and that was Civitas's audience, mm-hmm. whereas the primary audience for the John Locke Foundation are lawmakers. As time went on, and um, you know, Francis DeLuca led Civitas, and John Hood and Corey Swanson led the John Locke Foundation, um, the organization's just because of how think tanks have to function became more similar. They were having to have overlap in their audiences. And so uh, I was CEO of the Civitas Institute in March of 2020, uh, and Amy Cook was uh, CEO of the John Locke Foundation. And we started having this conversation, like, look, this is getting a little silly. I'm trying to make sure I get a, a press release out before you do. We're talking to the same donors. We want generally the same things in public policy. And so we started talking to our boards. We started talking to our donors. Uh, and so in January 2021, we merged capacities, mm. uh, and she was CEO uh, and is CEO of the John Locke Foundation. I'm president of the John Locke Foundation, and I'm happy to work with Amy. Uh, she, she's very knowledgeable, and I'm happy to work with her uh, and learn a lot from her. When the merger was happening and mm. it was announced, I think a lot of folks in NC Poll thought, well, one is going to eat the other. You're either yeah. going to be... John Locke kind of that stayed putting out white papers. Some people thought, well, Civitas, that rapid fire is going to take over. It seems like you guys have kept a balance. I see both organizations in the John Locke Foundation. That, that's what we've really tried to do. There were good things, you know, things, every organization has things that need to be corrected. Um, but we thought that there were some good things that we had, you know, good market signals that people enjoyed. And we've tried to keep that. It's a difficult balance sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't always throw firebombs if you're trying to get serious public policy through. Right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but uh, we, we've tried to keep that balance. And sometimes if something's silly, we'll just call it silly and... That's yeah. the Civitas part of it. And how long, tell us about your career there, including Civitas. Oh, boy. Um, I'll I'll go back to the beginning of my political, or my, not political career, but my career in North Carolina. I've been in North Carolina since 2007. That's when I got married, Mm -hmm. moved here. I I was unemployed, and she was very much employed. And so I moved here because she lived here, and I lived in Georgia. Uh, 2007, 2008 was a terrible time to try to get a job. Uh, I was trying to finish up school and uh, couldn't get a job. I, I still have the spreadsheet. It's 75, 78 jobs. And I'm talking about like gas station attendant, bag boy at Trader Joe's, wow. could not get a job. And one day a post popped up on the PAC portal 
at NC State for an internship at what was then uh, the John William Pope Center for Higher Education Policy. It's now the Martin Center, the James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal. $8 an hour, great, I applied. Uh, I got the internship, uh, was happy to do it. I, I remember running circles in my backyard. $8 <laughs> an hour from unemployed entirely was, mm-hmm. I mean, that was big money. I was incredibly excited. And from there, I, uh, I was exposed to several people in the public policy space in North Carolina at the John Locke Foundation, other groups, including Parents for Educational Freedom. I did some volunteer work from them uh, as they were sort of in the middle of the gubernatorial campaign of 2008 uh, and helped uh, Daryl Allison when he was there, now Chancellor now Allison. Now Chancellor, yeah. Yeah, put together uh, an event in Durham, and he uh, talked to me in January on the second half of my internship at the Martin Center. Uh, and said, hey, could you come help us build our database out, manage some projects? I'm sure, happy to do that. I was still in school. See, that was the summer of 2009. He hired me on full-time. My first full-time job. I, I was a big boy. Uh, I got a salary job. I, I felt so cool. Bought a house uh, down in Garner. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that was my first job. And I think I had five job titles in three years All at right. PEFNC. Yeah. Yeah, that was, a, that was a good time. Got to got to meet Brian. Yeah. Um, actually, I want to tell a story. I've been meaning to tell this story about you. Yeah, so you ha- you buckle up. <laughs> okay, I'm right. No, this is a great story. When was this? So this was after Republicans had taken majorities in the General Assembly. This would have been 2011. Mm-hmm. And you were with the NCAE. Mm-hmm. And there was a bill... That didn't go anywhere, uh, but we were very much in favor of to do tax credits for, uh, I think, private school tuition. It didn't. The bill didn't really go our way that we thought it would in the House Finance Committee. And of course, as happens sometimes, uh, lobbyists descended on the chair of the committee, who happened to be Julia Howard at the mm-hmm. time. And she was arguing a point with me, and I don't remember what it was. It was about documentation when you're filing your taxes for the tax credit or something like that. And I offered an explanation. She's like, well, I don't believe it. And then you, complete opposition to me, said, no, Representative, he's actually right on that point. <laughs> and I just kind of stepped back like, no, what, wait, what just happened? <laughs> You're supposed to argue with me. What, what just happened? Yeah. Uh, but that was uh, sort of my first foray into lobbying was that session. And uh, I, I will remember that moment. Well, thank you for mentioning it a, that. It was a very honest moment. Yeah. But I, I was at uh, Parents for Educational Freedom for three years or something like that. And uh, another opportunity came up with Americans for Prosperity for a grassroots director here in the Raleigh area, uh, or as the people in DC call it the Raleigh-Durham area, but we mm-hmm. all know it's just Raleigh, mm-hmm. right? No, I, I worked, it's work in Durham too. And I sort of did the survive and advance thing. Dallas Woodhouse hired me there and uh, I stayed along long enough to be state director for Americans for Prosperity. Uh, and that was an eye-opening experience in a lot of ways with state politics and national politics. Um, got a lot of management training and how to actually leadership is one thing. Management is another thing. Um, and I really appreciated that. And then, um, while I, I liked my time at Americans for prosperity, I didn't like the being in DC every other week, great people, but you know, I, I bought my house because I like it and I like my kids and I like to see them. <laughs> uh, and this opportunity came up with the Civitas Institute. Um, and I applied and I, I became the CEO of the Civitas Institute in 2018. And then, I told you about the merger and the rest Mm -hmm. is history from there. Amy, more of the CEO as far as fundraising and all Mm -hmm. of that. And then are you doing more of the day-to-day affairs? That's generally how we've we've, um, done that. Uh, Amy came in with a lot of different experience having worked at the Independence Institute in Colorado. The the way we've generally distributed the labor is she is very hands-on with fundraising. Uh, She's all over the state all the time. 
in addition, uh, she's a journalist uh, by trade and, and is very interested in managing Carolina Journal. She takes care of that, and then she manages me. She's the person I report to, and then uh, I'm the one who sort of helps oversee the the, the HR stuff and the policy uh, or the research team and government affairs and communications and making sure all that works together day to day. Take us back to your early life, Donald. Mm, sure. Uh, I was the product of a teenage pregnancy yeah. back in the, you know, when the world was young and Reagan was in the white house <laughs> in 1984. <laughs> Everybody take a shot from a Reagan invocation, right? <laughs> Uh, no, I was a product of a teenage pregnancy, and of course, my grandparents uh, had had my mother when they were 21, so they were grandparents at 36. Wow. Right? That's kind of crazy, because I'm 38, yeah. <laughs> and like, oh, I, I moved all over. Um, my father joined the Army when um, uh, when I was four, and so we moved from Lexington, Tennessee, down to Fort Hood in Texas, and stayed there for a couple of years, and then we moved... Um, back to Knoxville, Tennessee, he had gotten uh, a, a, an opportunity, a scholarship through the Army with the University of Tennessee. Uh, and my parents divorced uh, about three months after we made that move. So my mom and I moved back uh, in with my grandparents, my maternal grandparents uh, in Lexington. My grandparents are incredibly and still are incredibly influential in my life. You know, that's where I got you know most, most of the, the values and what little virtue I have, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I got from there. Um, but I, I grew up in a place where, you know, hard work and, uh, you know, the value of, of it being your own property because you worked to have that property was a big deal. And people wonder why uh, flare up so much when we talk about corporate incentives and that sort of thing. That has a lot to do with the area that I was brought up in. So Henderson County, Tennessee is uh, the second most Republican county in, mm. in Tennessee. Uh, What's first? Uh, some county in East Tennessee. I'm not mm. sure which. In Henderson County, in that area, there are seven lakes on the Beach River that were dammed up, and they were managed by the TVA. They they produce zero power. They are not hydroelectric dams. They are just dams. And so what had happened in the late 50s was that some businessmen in the area, that's always fun, got together with some state lawmakers, that's always fun, uh, and said, you know, what would be great is if we could dam up this river. One, it would help mitigate some uh, some erosion in the area, which is true. And then, but it would create these lakes, and we'd have this, you know, great uh, opportunity to to expand with tourism, and we could build a lot of prosperity on all that sort of thing. And so, I, I literally grew up with stories of like the, some of the older people at church talking about how they remember being marched off of their own farms mm. at gunpoint with state troopers taking over the land through eminent domain. And so I'm like, ah, when big business and big government get together, I've become very concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, and those stories have stuck with me for a, a really, really long time. And if we look at Henderson County, Tennessee today, the, the poverty rate is still above the national average. The unemployment rate is still above the national average. I go back there about twice a year, and I love my family that are there. And I'm like, oh, Lexington's really growing. How big is it? Well, it's about, you know, 7,000 people. It was 7,000 people when I was 12. Did you identify as a conservative early on, or when did that happen? I, the, the first time I remember seeing the news, it was uh, President Reagan meeting with some foreign dignitary. I don't remember who. But the first time I became aware sort of politics was the 92 presidential election. And um, Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush. Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush. Yeah. yeah, bless Ross Perot's heart. <laughs> and I started asking my grandfather these questions. Why did he say this? Why do we think that? Why do you think that? I don't know, I was seven, eight, something like that. And, and so I, I really became interested in, in this process of what it is to elect our leaders, 
why it's important. You know, that, that was when I really became interested. But then I would sit down with my grandfather at night and uh, we would literally sit on the couch, much like I'm sitting right here. And he would just tell me stories about American history. I was mesmerized. It was like hearing fairy tales. You had heroes, you had villains. They must be very proud that you're in the, a leader in the conservative movement. Um, yeah, I, I get the sense that they're proud. Yeah. Uh, but then my grandmother um, will look at me and like, how do you know how to do this? I was like, nobody knows how to do it. We just kind of fake it till we, till we make it. <laughs> so as you grew up, did you consider running for office or were you active in your local Republican community? No, I've never been uh, active in the Republican Party. Never really thought about running for office. I was just full of opinions. <laughs> uh, I was full of opinions. I think, you know, before I really got into public policy and I was coming at the back end of high school and getting into college, I, I wanted to be a professor. I wanted to be, you know, a history professor or a philosophy professor, which has a lot to do with why I changed majors a thousand times. Um, but that's what I wanted to do. Uh, just the ideas excite me. Um, I, I think that sounds dry. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could have said that somehow better somehow, but I think ideas are important. Kind of going off of that. How do you decide what issues you're going to take on and, or what issues you're going to focus on for a period of time? That's a great question. And it grows increasingly complicated as we go through time. The easy way is, uh, we sit down for, it's about a three day process uh, or we do strategic planning every year at the Locke Foundation. And out of that, we build out possible, you know, we look at trends in, in politics and in public policy and in demographics and economics and all of that. Uh, and then we, from those trends, we discuss, well, what scenarios could come out of those trends? Okay. What are the likelihood of these scenarios and what's what, on a scale of one to 10, basically, you know, what sort of impact could they have on the state? And the high likelihood, high impact things are the things we're going to work on, assuming they're in within our policy wheelhouse. There are plenty of things that are not within our policy wheelhouse, but if they are, um, then those quickly become part of our legislative agenda. And what is your policy wheelhouse? Generally speaking, we try to help create a policy environment where people are more economically free. Mm. Um, now, I know a lot of our pro-life listeners will say, well, you know, you know, if you're not alive, you don't have economic freedom, and that's mm -hmm. important. And, and I... Look, I, I came from a teenage pregnancy. I'm pro-life myself, but there are like ten groups working on right. uh, on the issue of abortion on the right, and ten issue ten that are working on it from the left. Uh, there are very few conservative groups that are working on the tax code right. or energy policy and things like that. And uh, you know, in a division of labor and thinking about specialization, that's our wheelhouse. That's what we're supposed to work on. That is disciplined. Uh, we we see it in NC poll on all sides of mm -hmm. the spectrum folks feel the need to get in another lane right. and go down and, and and john Locke has always kind of had this discipline about it mm -hmm. it's paid off it, it has paid off if you if you spread yourself too thin you know what's the napoleon quote uh the, the general who tries to be strong everywhere is weak everywhere right so yeah, we, we try to be disciplined because we try to be impactful. Tell us a little bit about how you interact with the General Assembly mm -hmm. and maybe like the highs and lows of doing that. We have a great government affairs team at uh, the John Locke Foundation uh, with Jordan Roberts and Andre Beliveau. The, those guys, it is their job, Andre and Jordan, it is their job to interact with the General Assembly. And so they're down there an awful lot to have those personal touches and, and relationships. That was not the style of lobbyist that I was necessarily. If I was there, I was there for a purpose. I, I think sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. 
So we have had Republican control of our legislative branch since 2011. Mm-hmm. There is a misconception out there. Oh, it's John Locke. They're getting everything yeah. they want. Just back the truck up, General Assembly, right. and dump yeah. it off. That is not the case, right? No, no, no. It's, <laughs> it, it's not the case. Now, that, that being said, the John Locke Foundation had been around since 1990, and Republicans took control of both chambers of the General Assembly for the first time going into the 2011 session. So... The John Locke Foundation had a very good few years there, right? Because they'd just been pounding it into everybody's head for two decades. But then that sort of slowed down, right? Um, Part of it is that this legislative leadership has been in power for a long time, and they've accomplished a lot of things that they themselves promised 10 years ago. And now they, they know a lot of these industry lobbyists a lot more, and they're looking for those things to do. We still see a lot of good conservative legislation come out of the North Carolina General Assembly, and then we see some stuff that sort of makes us scratch our head. And, you know, guys, this isn't what we've talked about as conservatives for a long time. Republican doesn't mean conservative anymore. I used to be able to say that Democrat didn't mean liberal. Mm-hmm. I think that probably is the case now in, in North Carolina. The Tony Rand, Mark Bass Knight Democrats, the Kay Hagan Democrats aren't around much anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, th- that was a conversation we had actually last week. We had, we had some strategy meetings last week, and we're like, we're... Where are the pro-business Democrats? How do we get those back? (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, There's a few left, but we've either run them off or they've decided to stay at home. Or they bristened it up, right, and and changed parties. You know, I I talk to our staff all the time, and the example I use is, you know, if Roy Cooper comes out tomorrow and proposes a bill to uh, lower the state income tax rate, if we don't give it its full-throated support, we should be out of business right right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, we are not victorious because you know Republicans take over and Republicans take majorities. Um, we, we are victorious when we have, or we've been successful when policies pass that allow for human flourishing. We believe that human flourishing comes when people have more individual and economic freedom. That's our philosophy. Now, whatever vehicle gets us there politically, I don't care. Super majorities in the Senate or super majority in the Senate. It's dangling over on the House yeah, side. Yeah, I, lo- I like how everybody's spinning it as a functional supermajority. <laughs> Do you think it is? Do you think it's not? You know, the way I say it is there are going to be a lot of community parks funded in the budget in, in, <laughs> yeah. in the coming session. Uh, and that's what it will make it a functional supermajority. Yeah. Um, and as a conservative, that's a concern, right? You know, uh-huh. the, yeah, y'all love pork, don't you? Yeah, right. I, you know, I, I like pork I can eat, uh-huh. not pork that someone else is spending for me. Uh-huh. And that's a concern of mine. Uh, and, and just from uh, in a functional way, look, if the government is wasting money on something that's not a core government service, then we, we've literally really taking money from people and so a legislator i'm just making this up but a legislator in anson county got you know uh, a community pool built or something like that while the plumber in carteret county had to give up more of his tax money now i don't know how much how much of his money was but the principle still applies he worked hard for those five cents right Mm -hmm. but it's a trade-off you're going to get a conservative budget i assume Mm -hmm. other than the pork maybe that helps get the democrats to come over and i'm sure Big issues you're working on are going to be veto-proof. I mean, hopefully so. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're hoping on. You know, we're, we're uh, it's, it's a lot of our bread and butter issues. You know, we still want, we still think there's work to be done in taxes. We still think there's work to be done in educational opportunity for families. We have some thoughts about transportation funding. We have some thought, we have lots and lots of thoughts about energy and where to move forward there. I think there's a lot of appetite, uh, particularly in the state Senate, to do some stuff on energy. So that. That's what we're looking at. Maybe we get veto-proof majorities uh, on those, but but we'll see. The big issue, it's been a big issue for 
a long time now, but a lot of folks think that uh, Medicaid expansion mm-hmm. is coming in this session. It illustrates a lot of points. I want your views on how you think this is going to play out, but mm-hmm. this kind of puts you at odds, right, with, it does. with the leadership. It does. If, if we pass Medicaid expansion in North Carolina, uh, you know, and this goes to your point of the John Locke Foundation gets everything it wants. Well, if, if Medicaid expansion passes in North Carolina, it'll be the largest expansion of entitlements in state history with conservative, using air quotes, majorities, and the John Locke Foundation still fully operational. No, we don't get everything that we want. Yes, the tide seems to have turned against us mm-hmm. uh, at some point, but we're not going to back off of our position. We thought it was bad policy 12 years ago, and we think it's bad policy now. Um, uh, you know, I think it's a really bad idea for people that are on Medicaid right now for us to add another half million people onto those roles without increasing the the, the supply of medical care uh, in North Carolina. Um, you know, we've got counties in North Carolina that don't have a general practitioner. Well, you know, those people in that county have Medicaid now. Okay, cool. So they've got insurance. It's like having car insurance but not having gasoline in the car. Mm-hmm. What difference does that make? Mm-hmm. You didn't do anything for those people. Um, the state Senate wanted, or the Senate majority wanted to expand Medicaid and do certificate of need. I, I appreciate the certificate of need part of that, but the time to do certificate of need was five years ago if you wanted to expand Medicaid, because just because you expand certificate of need along with Medicaid expansion doesn't mean that doctor's offices are suddenly going to drop from the sky, right? We have an actual capacity problem that nobody wants to address. So you talked a little bit about issues that y'all work on. Mm -hmm. What is something over your career that you have worked on that you would say is your crowning achievement or something you're really proud of? It it wasn't the first round of tax reform uh, that was passed in 2013. It was actually the second round of tax reform in 2015, uh, simply because I knew at that point it was a movement and not just a one-off thing. It's really easy for legislators to say, yeah, we've done that and we're done. There's no more work to be done. But when they when they passed the second bill is when I knew it had gotten through the culture at the General Assembly of, oh, th- this is actually a longer process. This mm-hmm. is a longer com- a conversation mm-hmm. about reducing the tax code or reducing the tax rates, reducing the tax burden and simplifying the tax code. Believe it or not, left or right, left and right both agree about simplifying the tax code. It's the rates that they argue about. <laughs> right. right. Let's talk about left and right. Last December, you guys held a housing summit conference Mm -hmm. at the John Locke Foundation. And I listened to this conference. I couldn't attend. I wanted to attend, but I watched the YouTube video. And in this panel discussion that I saw, you had Bill Rowe from the North Carolina Justice Center, Mm -hmm. a liberal think tank here in town. I would argue probably your counterpart as far as an agency. You had Brent Woodcox on, Tim Minton from Home Builders Association. And I was struck several reasons. One, it was a great conversation about housing policy. And I thought everyone was kind of agreeing and it was just this great moment. But you guys really do reach out across the political spectrum to address issues. And I think a lot of folks who don't attend or Mm -hmm. didn't watch the YouTube video think that, oh, that that would never happen. But it does. Can you talk about this nonpartisan approach that you really do take and even including an organization that does not see eye to eye with John Locke on big major policy issues. Right. Yeah. I mean, the Justice Center is absolutely our counterpart. uh, And there aren't a lot of states that have left of center think tanks like North Carolina does. I'm not saying we're absolutely unique, but that's not a common thing. A lot of props to them for being that counterpart and, and, and being people that we have to spar with. 
if you're trying to get to a place of human flourishing, you, you should be able to acknowledge some realities. I think that a good deliberative process and trying to figure out some sort of common ground. So we talked about a, this a little before we started the podcast today. Mm-hmm. And when you were on with Brent, we did ask you your magic wand, but you said you had a different one for today. Mm-hmm. So if you had a magic wand and you could change something in our politics, what would it be? Um, I wish that when people filed bills, they had to go all the way to the end before they saw who the author of the bill was. Uh, I think that way it would help uh, people look at bills based on virtue Mm -hmm. and not necessarily on R's and D's. Interesting. Because so many times, right, you just see who the sponsors, you're like, nope. Oh, Dobson sponsored that one. (laughs) Some kind of Republican (laughs) conspiracy. Get money to the mountains or something. Yeah. Right. Well, Donald Bryson, we appreciate everything you are doing at the North Carolina General Assembly and North Carolina policymaking. We wish you the best of luck this legislative session. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you guys for having me on. I really appreciate it. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. I enjoyed listening to his story and I especially liked the story about the two of you back in the day and you disagreeing with him on issues, but agreeing with him on what he was telling a member. You always could use some good karma down at the General Assembly. Anytime you can help your opposition, maybe it'll go your way in the next meeting or they'll back down. But I I cringed when he said he had a story. I'm looking forward to this session with you. I love the long session. It's like a fresh start. Me too. I like the long session. Although you think about like bill filing deadlines and all of that, that can be a little hectic, crossover, etc. We'll get into all of that in the upcoming weeks. And we'll give our own little preview as far as what's going to happen. So next week, we will come back with another interview. Again, we're going to come at it from the left side of a special interest group and talk to them about how they are preparing for this session. We hope you'll join us for that podcast. Well, we will talk to you next week. Until then, we hope you have gotten some rest, watched some good football bowl games. We don't need to get into it. Oh, gosh, I feel like I triggered you. <laughs> Please do not start with this. Duke mayonnaise bowls. Yay. <laughs> okay. Anyway, watch some football. Enjoyed some family time in the last couple of weeks. Again, we'll talk to you next week. But until then, Please remember to do politics better.